What will you leave behind for your family when you die? That is a very important question in our culture. I think probably in every culture to some degree, but in ours in particular. In fact, many people make a living by addressing that very question. Think about it. There are certain types of lawyers, probate judges, life insurance salesmen, insurance companies and the like, all deal with what people leave behind at death. Now for some people that's really not a big deal, not much of a problem. I talked to a man, I've never forgotten the, the, the occasion, I sat in his home, I think if I recall the number, it was a large number of children, but I think it was eight children, eight siblings, nine with him. His mother and father died, all of the adult children gathered back at the house, they divided everything up in nine piles, and he said we were all happy with our pile. No arguments, everybody went away thankful. It doesn't always go that smoothly, does it? You probably have a little bit of family history somewhere that indicates it doesn't always go that smoothly. More often than not, families fight over the piles. And the bigger the piles, the bigger the fight. Before they die, some people use their will as a tool of revenge and hatred. Some leave behind nothing but a pile of debt for their families to pay off. Some leave lots and lots of junk that their families have to clean up and throw out. But what will you leave behind for your family when you die? The answer to that question will reveal, I think, a lot about you and about how you have lived life. And I think God is very concerned about what we leave behind physically. A righteous man, says the proverb, leaves behind an inheritance for his grandchildren. God calls us in His Word to a life of hard work and faithful stewardship and assures us that all things being equal, a godly life will usually generate some degree of wealth. But when we consider the question, what will you leave behind for your family when you die, there is much more to it than material wealth. No matter your economic status. No matter if you are a pack rat or a neat freak that throws out everything extra, you will leave behind a spiritual legacy for those who survive you. And that is a big deal. I want to live well. I want, by God's grace, to live well. I want to live life to the glory of my Savior, to His honor. And having done so, I want to finish that off by dying well. By leaving behind a spiritual legacy that will count for God. And if you share that longing with me, then it is with great interest that we should come to Genesis chapter 48 and 49. Because in these chapters, we are privileged to stand by the deathbed of a man of God who dies well. Jacob is dying. Remembering the chronology, chapter 47 and verse 28, Genesis 47, 28, Jacob lived in Egypt 17 years, and the years of his life were 147. When the time drew near for Israel to die, he called for his son Joseph and said to him, If I have found favor in your eyes, put your hand under my thigh. So it's their means of taking an oath. And he said, Promise that you will show me kindness and faithfulness. Do not bury me in Egypt, but when I rest with my fathers, carry me out of Egypt 
and bury me where they are buried. I will do as you say, Joseph replies. Swear to me, he said. Then Joseph swore to him, and Israel worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. As we get the larger picture here, I'd like to just give you a, a view of the overall issue that is before us here in these chapters. Chapter 47 and 48 and 49 of Genesis are all dealing with the death of Jacob. And as you can see on the, the graphic here before you, it starts there with a mention of his death. In chapter 47, 28, Jacob lived in Egypt 17 years. Verse 29, when the time drew near for Israel to die, he called for his son Joseph. So you see that at the beginning of this account. And I'd like you to go to the end, to that uh, bottom bar there, if you're able to, to see that. 49.33. Go in the, in the text of Scripture and look at 49.33. In 49.33, we read, When Jacob had finished giving instructions to his sons, he drew his feet up into the bed, breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. So at the start, we, we have here an obvious section. It's marked off by an announcement that Jacob is dying, and it ends with the statement of his death. Everything that comes between is Jacob essentially on his deathbed dealing with the end of his life and bequeathing to his children a spiritual legacy. So we need to understand that as we work through that and by God's grace finish up with chapter 49 next week. We're dealing with a death scene. We're dealing with a man who is passing away and we're looking at him in death. Now, we have seen Jacob as a man filled with weakness. Let me, I should probably stop here and just go through the whole thing then. It, we see death instructions, which is what we looked at. We started with last week that first green block there of death instructions, Genesis 47, 29 to 31. And we'll notice then that the whole account ends there also with death instructions at 49, 29 through 32. So the section is put together very carefully, very carefully constructed that we would understand that this is dealing with the death of Jacob and he is finishing up business, so to speak, as he passes life. We will be looking today at that first middle section there, the blessing of Joseph, and then by God's grace next week at the blessing of all the sons of Jacob in chapter 49. So this gives you basically the context of the whole setting here. Now we're going to focus in then on that one idea, chapter 48 of Jacob's blessing of Joseph. In life, Jacob was a man filled with weakness and failure. But there was spiritual progress. As time passed, Jacob began, as we say in our terminology, he began to get it together. He began to trust in God more and more and to see the purposes of God for his life and to rest in the Lord through his life. But it is in death that Jacob shines. And the key to seeing Jacob shining here on his deathbed is to consider again the backdrop of this whole scene. As Jacob prepares to die, where is he? What's going on? We must remember that Jacob is in Egypt. How has he gotten here? Famine in Canaan brings him to the south and to the west into Egypt where there is food. That reunites him with his son, Joseph. Now Jacob has been here in Egypt for 17 years. He's lived a good life here in Egypt. Notice chapter 47, if you'll go back to verse 11. 47 and verse 11. How is it going for Jacob in Egypt during these last years of his life? Well, in our terminology, he has retired and gone to a mansion on Hawaii. 
or somewhere on the French Riviera or somewhere, he is living in splendor these last days of his life because of all that has happened with his son Joseph. But Genesis 47 verse 11 says, So Joseph settled his father and his brothers in Egypt and gave them property in the best part of the land. Fill in there where you want that to be, but in our parallel, I mean, he had the best place on the most pow- in the most powerful nation on earth he's provided for. He gives him property in the best part of the land, the district of Ramses, as Pharaoh directed. Verse 12, Joseph also provided his father and his brothers and all his father's household with food according to the number of their children. Go down to verse 27. We find there the encapsulation of Jacob's life here in Egypt. And what does it say? Genesis 47, 27. Now the Israelites settled in Egypt in the region of Goshen. They acquired property there and were fruitful and increased greatly in number. He has it all. He has the world by the tail. He has everything that could possibly be provided. And remember, it even gets better. Because it's not only his son Joseph, second in command in Egypt, but it's also Joseph's wife, Asenath, who is connected to the cultural elite there in Egypt. And both sides of the family then are provided for by Pharaoh at a time when everyone else is getting into trouble financially. They're dying of starvation and they are coming. And what are they doing? They're selling themselves to Egypt. So we might parallel it to, the, say, the 1940s, a time of of depression in our country, there were a few families that made a lot of money during the depression. Not many at all, almost no one, but there were a few who really did well. That's Jacob. He, is, he has got it made at a time when there is tremendous economic trial in the world, in his world. That's where Jacob is as he prepares to die. He's He has has it made in Egypt, and he stands in line to be buried in Egypt with great distinction. Again, that's difficult for us to imagine. We're not too terribly worried about how we get buried or where. But for them in that day, that was the ultimate distinction, was to be buried with honor. And he stands to be buried with great distinction in Egypt as does his son Joseph, certainly, and his sons Manasseh and Ephraim. With that backdrop, then, Jacob's preparations for death are nothing short of remarkable. Chapter 47, verse 29, as we've read it already, he says to Joseph, don't bury me here. Bury me back in Canaan. Jacob identifies not with the riches of Egypt. He identifies with the promise of God in his death. Now think about this. Jacob only has a small tract of land in Canaan. Egypt is a very good situation for him. And you might even take it ironically, if we want to go in this direction, that his grandchildren speak of his great situation there. Remember Manasseh? What's Manasseh mean? It means to forget. Joseph used that to say he forgot about his troubles in Canaan, but it might be taken now at this point in the history of this family. Forget might be, I've forgotten Canaan. And what's Ephraim's name mean? Fruitful. It might be taken now to be, we will be fruitful in Egypt. But Jacob says no. That is not the legacy that he wants to to leave behind. In death, Jacob does not cling to the temporal pleasures of Egypt. He reaches out in faith clinging to the promises of God. 
and he very effectively points his family in that direction as he dies. So we notice, first of all, as we come to chapter 48, then Jacob adopts Joseph's sons. This is going to be really boring, this passage, if we don't see it with this backdrop of the riches of Egypt and what Jacob is doing as he seeks to identify with Canaan. Seeing that backdrop, then it becomes very significant that he adopts Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. Verse 1, Sometime later, Joseph was told, Your father is ill. So he took his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, along with him. Sometime later. That goes back to 47.29. Remember there, uh, as far as he knew, Jacob, as far as he knew, he was, he was dead. He was going to die. Back to that section, that end, end section of 47. Apparently he lives a little bit longer. And so word is sent, though, now that he... Uh, is dying, word is sent to Joseph, who leaves Pharaoh's court for Goshen, and there's indications subtly in the text that I don't think Joseph is living in Goshen. He's at the court of Pharaoh, so he travels to Goshen, not too far away, but he travels to see his father, his dying father. Verse 2, when Jacob was told, your son Joseph has come to you, Israel rallied his strength and sat up on the bed. You see the scene now, people lived a little bit longer back then than they do today for various reasons. Many died a lot younger. But if you made it to old age, you could live quite a bit longer. We have a man here who's 147. And here he is on his deathbed, and he hears his son, his favorite son, Joseph, is here, and he musters all the strength that he can, and he sits up, so to speak, for one last time to meet his son. We're probably here on a bed that don't think of a poster bed with a canopy, all right? That's not probably the situation. It's probably just something of a somewhat simple mat on the floor. It might be elevated a little bit, but he's probably laying there on the ground, uh, as would be the case in that time. And he rises up, probably sitting here on his bed then, to speak with his son Joseph. He sits up on the bed. And when I say probably, I mean there he probably doesn't keep coming. He probably stays there on the bed sitting as the text would indicate. Now, verse 3. Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the, Cana in the land of Canaan, and there he blessed me and said to me, I am going to make you fruitful and I will increase your numbers. I will make you a community of peoples and I will give this land as an everlasting possession to your descendants after you. Now, as we know in the text, there probably there, there are many things that are not recorded, many things that are said, many things that are done. But if we take this kind of at straight at face value, I get a little bit of the sense if you've ever talked to somebody who's dying, they don't worry a whole lot about unimportant chit chat, right? They get right down to business. They got some things to talk about. And he starts off, and you wonder if Joseph's not a little bit, where's this coming from? God appeared to me at Luz. What Jacob is doing here is he's recounting his life of faith and his walk with God. That's what matters to Jacob. He's not saying to Joseph, Joseph, isn't this wonderful? We've got it made here in Egypt. Can you believe all the money we have? Can you believe how well we're doing? Isn't this great to be here? And then turns a bitter face to the wall knowing that his riches are soon to be left. That's not Jacob at all. He says, God appeared to me at Luz. That's what matters. Luz. Do you remember that? It's strange that he uses this word. But that takes us back to chapter 28. 
And in that setting, you remember, on the way, he was on the way out of the land. Why was Jacob at Luz in Genesis 20, 28? He was at Luz because he was running from his brother Esau. Remember, going to Padan Aram, he'll end up with Laban there, and he'll marry Leah and then Rachel. But he's running for his life. And at that time, if you remember that event, that's where God appears to him and he sees a stairway with angels coming up and down, indicating the providential workings of God in the mundane issues of life. And he sees God there at the head of the stairway. And the message that God gave to Jacob at that time was what? Jacob was running from God, not only running from Esau, but as at that time God gave to Jacob the promise, I will give to you this land and I will give to you a great offspring. We come back to those two promises, linking Jacob with whom? With Isaac and with Abraham, and the same promise to his fathers. That was chapter 28. Do you remember chapter 35? He comes back to Luz, which he renames then Bethel. Beth, the house, and El, God, the house of God. He renames it Bethel, and then in chapter 35, he comes back there again. Now he has left Padanaram. Now he has all of his children and his wives, and he's come back into the land of Canaan. And you remember, he didn't, he didn't land at Bethel. But God eventually calls him to go back there, and what happens is that a God again appears to him there at Bethel and promises him two things in chapter 35. What are they? A land and an offspring. God has not forgotten Jacob, and he said, I'll bring you back here, and he brought him back here. And that's what Jacob remembers as he talks in these last moments of his life. God spoke to me at Luz, and he brought me back to that same place, and he promised me there that he would bless me along with the chosen family of God. Now at verse 5, Jacob is going to act in such a way as to perpetuate his faith in those very promises. We have to catch that again or it just comes across as a, almost a meaningless finalization of the last moments of his life. It's not meaningless at all. He says, God appeared to me at Luz and He promised me the land of Canaan and He promised me an offspring. Now let's deal with those two issues. Verse 5. Now then your two sons born to you in Egypt before I came to you here will be reckoned as mine. Ephraim and Manasseh will be mine just as Reuben and Simeon are mine. As odd as that strikes us, in that culture, adopting a grandchild as your own was fairly common. And it was tied directly to inheritance rights. So what he is saying, what Jacob is saying, I, I mean, you almost, as an American, you almost get the idea, you read that, and, and, and you think, oh, Joseph's going to be kind of irritated with that. He's taking his sons away from him. Joseph's thrilled. What he's doing is he's elevating these two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, to the status of their uncles. And so what is happening is Joseph is receiving two shares in the inheritance, Ephraim and Manasseh. It's a way of elevating Joseph as the firstborn, but it is a way also in through this adoption of putting these two men then on the same level as their uncles. Do you see the phrase there in verse 5? They will be just as Reuben and Simeon. Who are they? Reuben and Simeon, the first and second sons of Joseph, of Jacob rather. So he is placing Joseph in the firstborn position and choosing his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, who will now have status along with all the other tribes. 
This maybe doesn't strike us all that because we're so familiar with the 12 tribes of Israel. But when you read the 12 tribes of Israel, you're dealing with a bunch of uncles and a couple of nephews. How do those nephews get there? They get there through Joseph as the two individuals who will, will rep represent him. They will not replace Reuben and Simeon in the inheritance. But by their selection, Jacob is selecting Joseph as the firstborn. Here's how the firstborn worked. You would take the number of sons in the family and you would increase the number by one. And the firstborn would get two of those shares. So going back to our pile analogy, if there were six sons, you'd make seven piles. And the firstborn would take two piles. So the firstborn would always get double what all the others got. Depending on how many brothers there were, that pile could get whittled down a little bit. And that's what's going on here. Joseph has two shares in Israel, Ephraim and Manasseh. All of the other tribes have one, because Joseph is seen here now as the firstborn. Why? Because Reuben has been disqualified. He's forfeited his place as the firstborn because of that whole debacle with Bilhah. You remember that? Apparently uh, a play to take over authority in the family from Jacob. He sleeps with Bilhah and he is then discredited. Simeon also is discredited, Genesis 34, in that whole situation at Shechem. And so he says, you are my firstborn. So Jacob adopts Ephraim and Manasseh, taking essentially Joseph as the firstborn here, elevating him to that status. Now to avoid any misunderstanding, he's careful with his will here, so to speak, concerning inheritance rights, Jacob clarifies the situation in verse 6 and says, any children born to you after them will be yours. In the territory they inherit, they will be reckoned under the names of their brothers. So it's not going to be, if you have more sons, we're not going to factor them in there. It's just Ephraim and Manasseh, the two sons, as your firstborn right in the land. Now, something really strange would have struck somebody that was listening in on this. Certainly it must have hit Joseph oddly. And that is the phrase Ephraim and Manasseh. Why is that strange? That's strange because you'd never talk of your sons like that. Because Manasseh is the oldest. Well, Jacob's 147 years old, and he's about to die, and you kind of just let something like that slide, right? He's doing something here, and I think probably at this point Joseph doesn't quite know what, but just keep that in mind as he switches the order of their names. Now, at verse 7, there's, and I'll, I'll be honest to say, I never got to the bottom of this one. Uh, I, it, this is a really hard phrase, but he just says in verse 7, As I was returning from Padan, that is Padan Aram, where Laban was, to my sorrow Rachel died in the land of Canaan while we were still on the way, a little distance from Ephrath. So I buried her there beside the road to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem, house of bread. Why that's in here, I, I haven't figured out, and nor has any commentator figured it out to my satisfaction. It's a strange phrase to throw in there. But, so let's just take it at face value. Without trying to figure out a whole lot of why he throws in here Rachel's death, let's just say he's talking about Joseph, he's facing death, and his thoughts naturally turn to his wife Rachel. Rachel, who is buried in Canaan, and that's a big deal in this whole thing, and Rachel, Joseph's mother. I don't know exactly why you could read a lot of explanations as to the point of this. It's, it's really difficult to know, and perhaps there isn't a whole lot to it other than he just wants to reference his wife. But he clearly blesses Joseph's 
adopts rather Joseph's sons. Now, at verse 8, we will see that Jacob blesses Joseph's sons. So in these first seven verses, he adopts them. They, become in, they, they, they are placed in the, in the position of the firstborn in Israel, elevated to the status of their uncles. They will become the heads of separate tribes in God's blessing to Joseph, or in Jacob's blessing of Joseph. Now, Jacob blesses Joseph's sons. Adopts them, now he blesses them. Verse 8, When Israel saw the sons of Joseph, he asked, Who are these? They are the sons God has given me here, Joseph said to his father. Then Israel said, Bring them to me so I may bless them. So apparently we have Joseph before his father here, perhaps seated on the ground, but he sees two others and he says, Who are they? Now, Jacob has lived in Egypt for 17 years. When he got there, Manasseh and Ephraim were young boys. He obviously knows who they are. So what's going on? I think verse 10 is our explanation. Now Israel's eyes were failing because of old age and he could hardly see. The word hardly is inserted there. It's not in the original text, but that is basically the idea. If we read the liberal, uh, the, the text woodenly, where did liberal come in there? <laughs> I have no idea. Literally, I think that's what I was aiming at. If we read the text very carefully there, it says his eyes were heavy. Kavod, they are heavy eyes. In other words, he's losing his eyesight. But I think that's the point, that he can hardly see. But So he probably sees their shapes, but doesn't know really who they are. Or, as some suggest, he maybe does know who they are, but this is a formal introduction to them. At any rate, we see at verse 10, Joseph brought his sons close to him, and his father kissed them and embraced them. Now, there's a remarkable parallel here, isn't there, with Isaac? You remember Isaac? Isaac is blessing Jacob and Esau, and what's his problem? He can't see. We have the son doing just as his father did, dealing with blindness and blessing his sons before him, but un unable to see. But unlike his father, Jacob is proceeding in faith, and that will be very clear. Verse 11 Israel said to Joseph, Israel or Jacob said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face again, and now God has allowed me to see your children too. Jacob revels in the amazing grace of God. Luck has not arranged this meeting. God has, and Jacob rejoices. Verse 12, Then Joseph removed them from Israel's knees and bowed down with his face to the ground. There are men in their twenties. There are three references I'll not burden you with that right here, but there are three references as you put them all together. Ephraim and Manasseh have to be at least 20 years of age, and we would assume them Manasseh uh, older. So they're not sitting on Jacob's knees like we might think of it on a chair, but in some way they're leaning upon his knees or touching his knees as they are there before him. Perhaps they're kneeling before him or sitting before him, but in touching his knees, this was a very common position when you were adopting someone or when you are transferring family authority in some sense. A blessing ceremony is taking place here. We're in the prelude to that. But he removes them from before Jacob, and Joseph bows down before him as he thanks his father and is grateful to his father for adopting his sons. Now the blessing, a little further in prelude, verse 13 and Joseph took both of them, Ephraim on his right toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh on his left toward Israel's right hand, and brought them close to him. Two things here to bridge the gap to this strange context. First of all, blessings 
were ritual events of high significance. And that was particularly true with the Israelites who were often blessing their children prophetically through God's unique revelation and power. So these were very important events as you come to a time of blessing. The second thing that we have to understand that's not clear to us in our context is that the right hand always conveyed a greater blessing than the left. I don't know why, what the point was with that, but that's just the way that they looked at it. It can't be perfectly even down the middle. They were maybe a little more in touch with reality than we are on that point. We like to divide everything down the middle between our children. They said the right hand's a little more important than the left hand. So that's the context here. And Joseph takes his sons and kind of manipulates them and sets the stage for Jacob to put them in the right place so that the right hand will fall on Manasseh's head. That's protocol. That's what you do. The older is always honored in this kind of setting, is always honored above the younger. That's just right. That's just the way it is. But, verse 14, Israel reached out his right hand and put it on Ephraim's head, and though he was the younger, though he was the younger, and crossing his arms, he put his left hand on Manasseh's head, even though Manasseh was the firstborn. So, Jacob's virtually blind here, but he senses what is happening, that the boys are positioned as would be protocol and would be cultural, and he takes his arms and he crosses them. So again, the boys are probably, the men are probably down below him, in some sense, kneeling before him. We don't know exactly, but he, he crosses his hands and puts them on, uh, in the reverse order as would be expected. What Jacob is doing is purposefully circumventing the right of the firstborn, thus identifying by faith with God's saving plan. I, I know this takes a leap for us to try to figure this out. It's, it's a little bit of a struggle, but let's try to go there. What is Jacob doing by crossing his arms, and why in the world is it recorded here? Why is it important? We have to put this together with the whole message of Genesis, and it misses us because we don't think in these terms, right hand, left hand, blessing kinds of things. We don't think in those terms in our setting. But remember this. Who's the oldest, Cain or Abel? Cain, right? Who does God choose? Abel. Who's the oldest, Abram or Nahor? Nahor. Who does God choose? Abram. Who's the oldest, Isaac or Ishmael? Ishmael's the oldest, and whom does God choose? Isaac. And it's Jacob, not Esau. And it's Joseph, not Reuben. We have come to this place in the book of Genesis and we've almost come to expect God to choose the second. And though it's not true in our culture, and I thank God it's not true in our culture, in that setting, in that time, the firstborn was always seen as the strongest and the most important in the family. And God continually takes human machinations and He turns them on their head. He doesn't work the way people want to see him work. The way the culture operates. Time after time after time, God has done, his, done this, and now Jacob here stands forward and does the same thing. He identifies with God's electing ways by choosing the younger above the older. The ceremony takes place at verse 15. There is the invocation 
That is a calling of God to witness. Verse 15, Then he blessed Joseph and said, May the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my days to this day, the angel who has delivered me from all harm, there's the invocation. He's calling down, witnessing uh, the witness of God. Notice his identification, not with the wealth of Egypt, but with the faith of his fathers. Jacob is not commending ease to his family as he dies. He's leaving behind a legacy of faith. He acknowledges that God has shepherded him, protecting him, providing for him throughout his life, and he thus calls his children to trust that same God on their journey. There was an angel. You notice verse 16, at least in this translation, it's capitalized, capital A. It's the messenger of God who is God. If you look at verse 15 and compare it with the angel, it's really speaking of the same person. The angel is God yet distinguished from God. And as we put it together with other references, though that may not be particularly clear here, I think this angel is the pre-incarnate Jesus. And if you don't believe that, talk to me later and I'll show you a lot of verses that make that pretty clear. It's just pretty tough to deal with because he's God, but he's distinguished from God as the angel of God. At any rate, I have been protected, says Jacob, through my life. Now, after that invocation, the blessing of verse 16, May he bless these boys, or these young men. They're probably, the word is probably indicating that they're not yet married. Don't take that to mean they're little boys. They're in their 20s. We notice here the identification with men of faith then as this verse unfolds. May they be called by my name and the names of my fathers Abraham and Isaac and may they increase greatly upon the earth. What do you hear there? Connection to the people of promise, the offspring, and the land. That's where he points his children as he dies to the promises of God. Now verse 14 says that, notice verse 14. Jacob says there, or, or Jacob rather, the text says here that Jacob crosses his hands so as to put his right hand on Ephraim, And then verses 15 and 16 record what Jacob said. But there's indications in the Hebrew text that verse 17 came right after verse 14. In other words, at verse 17, Joseph is not arguing with the blessing, but rather than interrupting the blessing, Moses tells us of the blessing, and then he brings in this historical account to say that as Joseph was positioning his sons there, and as Jacob crossed his arms, Joseph probably thought Jacob was mistaken and said, whoa, 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 wait a minute here, Father. You got the, don't cross your arms. I've got it set up for you. You don't have to be thinking, I've got this all worked out here, verse 17. When Joseph saw his father placing his right hand on Ephraim's head, he was displeased. So he took hold of his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. You don't have this right, Father. You got, I've got it right. But, verse 18, Joseph said to him, no, I'm sorry, verse 18, Joseph said to him, No, my father, this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But notice what his father says, verse 19. He refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He too will become a people, and he too will become great. Nevertheless, his younger brother will be greater than he, and his descendants will become a group of nations. Joseph is 56 years old here. He has ruled as second in command over powerful Egypt for 26 years. 
For 17 years, he has provided for his father, Jacob. Do you think it was easy for Jacob to go through with this when he knew that Joseph didn't want him to? Jacob could have crumbled to Joseph's wishes, but he stands his ground. He has learned that God's sovereign election supersedes social convention. By blessing Ephraim ahead of Manasseh, Jacob follows the plan of God, the plan of faith. Now, Jacob has nothing against Manasseh. That's not the point here. As a matter of fact, he blesses him and says he'll be a great people. And Joseph has nothing against Ephraim. What we are seeing here is faith. Stretching faith to identify with the unique ways of God in which the naturally weak are elevated. Hang on to that thought. As we close, I'd like to return to it. But let's look at verse 20 quickly. He blessed them that day and said, In your name will Israel pronounce this blessing. May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. In other words, may they be so fruitful that they become proverbial. And they did. They were proverbial for fertility. When you talked about blessing and fertility, you would say proverbially, may God bless you like Ephraim and Manasseh. And you look at the numbers as the, as the books of, uh, of Moses unfold, and you see that these tribes were large and great. As a matter of fact, they were so great that at times, often it was just the practice to refer to the ten northern tribes of Israel as what? As Ephraim or Ephraim and Manasseh at times, that they would stand for the whole ten tribes. They were great nations, as according to Joseph, uh, Jacob's blessing here. You notice that phrase at the end of verse 20, so he put Ephraim ahead of Manasseh. Now, you, again, you can just say there's so what? Why do I care about that? Or why put that in there? Moses puts that in the text there to say in, in flashing lights, this is what we need to get. Just as God put Jacob ahead of Esau and Abraham ahead of Nahor and Abel ahead of Cain and, and the like, but particularly here in the, in the family of Abraham, the younger was chosen time and time again and Jacob identifies with that act of faith. As strange and odd as it all is to us, we need to at least say, see that. He's identifying with the ways of God. Now very quickly, verses 21 and 22, Jacob blesses Joseph. Now he's blessed Joseph in Ephraim and Manasseh, but now he turns specifically to this son, his, this son whom he loves so dearly. Verse 21, Then Israel said to Joseph, I am about to die, but God will be with you and take you back to the land of your fathers. I'm leaving you, says Jacob, but God isn't. And he's going to take you back to the land. Now the you there, and you might even see in your marginal note, is plural. It isn't so much, and Joseph will go back himself to the land for a brief visit, but it's not so much you, Joseph, yourself, will go back to live in the land forever, because he won't, he will die in Egypt. But you all, the Israelites, will go back to the land. And verse 21, the key here is faith in God's promises. He will take you back to the land of our fathers. Isn't it interesting, at that point in time, Jacob only has a small tract of land in Canaan, yet he refers to it as the land of our fathers. He's trusting God's promise. Verse 22, 
And to you, as one who is over your brothers, I give you the ridge of land I took from the Amorites with my sword and my bow. Once again, this section ends with an absolutely confusing statement. The Hebrew could be read, I give you a shoulder or I give you Shechem. And you might see that in your marginal note. And the reason being that the, the letters are the same uh, for the, these words shoulder or Shechem. So he might be saying, I give you one shoulder over your brothers. I kind of like that interpretation, but I, I don't know that I can prove it. But I think it's metaphorical saying, I give you one shoulder over your brothers, rather than, as we have translated here, I give you the ridge of land. The ridge of land is one way of taking it. There's about four or five different ways of taking this phrase. I know that's a little confusing, but the simple point is I think he's saying, I give you one shoulder over your brothers, and saying, you have one share of responsibility greater than your brothers. But another very possible idea would be that I give you Shechem. We won't take the time to go there for sake of time, but John 4, 5, Joshua 16, 1, Joshua 27, all of these refer to Shechem as being Joseph's inheritance. And who's the book written to? The Israelites who are now leaving Egypt. Remember, they're the original recipients of this book. They're leaving Egypt after 400 years in slavery, and they're coming into the promised land. And where in all of that promised land are they going to land? And where are they going to pronounce the blessings and the curses in the land? You remember, it's at Shechem. So I, I, I would take this very possibly to be, I give you more responsibility than your brothers as firstborn, or I give you the track of Shechem that I took with my sword and bow. What in the world does that mean? We haven't seen Jacob have any battles. So two options. One, he had a battle that's not recorded. Or two, he's referring in a, a way to the defeat of the city of Shechem in chapter 34, saying, I had no responsibility in that. That was Simeon and Levi, but in God's providence, I took Shechem by sword and bow. Whatever the case, he is obviously blessing Joseph here. Give me a few more moments, and let's tie this, this all together. This is a confusing passage to us. It's not an easy one to work through and to see the significance of it. And as we come to 49, it doesn't get any easier in the plowing. These are difficult things because we don't think in these terms like ancient Jews and these blessings. But I think it does call us to consider, what will you leave behind when you die? We learn much about Jacob and what he leaves behind, the legacy that he leaves for his family. He had confidence in the promises of God. That's what flows through this entire chapter. He believes the promises of God. He's resting in the promises of God. And believe me, if you live to old age and you die of old age somewhere in a bed, you're either going to believe the promises of God or you're not. And it's going to make a world of difference as you die. What you trust in. He did not stake himself to Egypt or to the social conventions of his day. He wasn't thinking like the world as he died. He staked his hope in Canaan and he relied upon the unique ways and promises of God. That's what he clung to as he passed this life. Bury me in Canaan. And all of you, I'm not telling you that I'm going to Canaan and you do whatever you want to do. I'm telling you and I'm setting it up here through these blessings and through all of this giving of my inheritance that you too will think of Canaan as your home. You will think of God as your God, not the gods of Egypt. And so I, I'm encouraged here, and I trust that you will be challenged here. First of all, 
Let's leave behind a legacy of faith in God's promises. The way we leave behind that legacy of faith in God's promises is to speak those promises to our families and to those that are around us. I think of the couple in our church who once told me, we never, ever, before we came to this church, talked about God in our home. And now we talk about Him all the time. Now, that's not this church that did that alone, but God used us as a tool to, re- to affect that change in that family's life. I hope that I don't speak to you, but I may. Perhaps in your home, God is not a very consistent topic. And the blessings of God and the ways of God and the promises of God are something that is only heard basically at church. If that's the case, you've got something to learn from Jacob. Leave behind a legacy of faith in God's promises. You have to talk about those promises. You have to talk about what God's Word says. And you must then, by His grace, keep clinging to those promises as you face death but I don't think it's going to come across very well in your own mind to cling to those promises in death when you've not clung to them in life. Jacob had come to trust those promises, to believe in God, to know that he was his shepherd, and he hung on to the very end, holding to the promises of God. Secondly, I think we learn here that are challenged here to leave behind a legacy of faith in God's ways. And I'd like you to turn to 1 Corinthians 1 here, which I think speaks from a New Testament perspective of exactly what is going on as Jacob chooses Ephraim over Manasseh. Now, we don't find that very easy to grasp in our setting, but we do find it laid out here for us in, on this side of the cross in very accessible terms. And here's what we need to draw from this passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And verse 26. Now hear these words and apply them. Do you think like this? And do you rejoice in God's Word? 1 Corinthians 1.26 Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before Him. Jacob identified with the God who confounds the wisdom of man and chooses the weak. Now we sang earlier this morning, let the weak say I am strong. Let the poor say I am rich. Why? Because of what the Lord has done. But as Jesus laid out in the Sermon on the Mount, we don't come to God unless we come poor in spirit. We come as the weak things of this world. We come as the despised. We come as the humble. And that's the very kind of people that God chooses. That's why we are here. And that's why I think we could say we don't have lots of wealthy people, lots of influential people, lots of strong people. There are some in the church of God. We don't find those kinds of people in our assembly. We're simple, we're weak, we're humble. There's a reason for that. That's the people that God chooses. Why? So that no one may boast before Him. Let that encourage you. 
If you say, I'm weak in body, I'm weak in spirit, I'm, I'm uninfluential, I don't have much money, I don't have much clout, I'm not an important person, I could die today and not much of the world would ripple with my death. But take heart. God chooses the weak. He chooses the poor. He chooses the simple so that no one comes to heaven and looks God in the eye and thinks about boasting. If we have not come in humility to salvation, we've not come to salvation. There's nothing of my work and there's nothing of my addition to what Christ has done. I come in simple faith and rest in the fact that he took my sins and died in my place doing something I could never do for myself and provided me salvation, which I reach for and accept in simple faith that he has done the work. He chooses the weak. And we're called here, I think, thirdly, to leave behind a legacy of walking with God. Verse 15. You see what Jacob says as he considers his legacy before God in that verse. May the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked and the God of who has been my shepherd all my life to this day. Leave behind a legacy of walking with God. Put that at, a, at your deathbed scene and substitute the words, I've lived a life doubting God's love. I've lived a life doubting God's plan. I've lived a life walking away from the purposes of God and dishonoring Him. That doesn't ring very well there, does it? I hope by God's grace we can die and say to our family, if they are gathered around and we have that opportunity to look into their eyes and to say, I have walked with God. Not that I am great, but God has been my shepherd. Who is your shepherd? Who is it that you really lean on? Where do you draw strength for your walk daily? Is it really, truly God? Is He the shepherd of your soul? Cling to Him as the shepherd so that in death you look your family in the eye and say, I trusted God. And I'm not sorry that I did. The Lord is my shepherd. I have never been in want. I have never lacked anything necessary because He has been my shepherd. What a legacy this man has left behind. Now, we cannot dictate to God how we're going to die. You might die in a car accident or of a sudden heart attack or drop dead somewhere in some way. But if God should permit you to die of old age and to die slowly, pray for the blessing of dying with a clear mind, surrounded with a family that you can bless. And I don't know if that has to just take place on our deathbed. I would encourage you to bless one another now Bless those around you in various ways. And parents, maybe I speak in particular here even to fathers, if that's fair to do. Bless your children. There are times at night, tucking my kids into bed, I'll be very open here and say I put my hand on their head. 
and I say to them, May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he cause his face to shine on you and give you peace. And they usually giggle right about then. <laughs> Someday they might know what I mean. Kind of a weird moment. But we need to bless our children with the grace of God. Now I'm no prophet, I'm no Jacob, and we're not saying that what we bless our children with will come true. But do they know that we love God? Do they know that we walk with God? And do they know that it's really no big deal to you what you leave behind physically, but that you long for them to know God like you knew Him? What a legacy. And I want to plan for that, and I would encourage you to plan for that. I know this might sound crazy, maybe to some of you not so crazy as to others, but I think we need to plan, if God gives us long life and death slowly, that we plan the way we go out. These days, drugs and doctors and hospitals have become almost fortresses behind which the sick can never come out and families can never talk. I would encourage you to find a way to stay as clear-minded as you can be and to spend as much time with your family as you can and to talk with them, if God gives that opportunity. But if he does, all of that's unknown, but if he does, put yourself in Jacob's place today. What will you say? Forgive me for being such a rotten dad. Forgive me for all my foolish words as a mom. Forgive me for failing to care and love. Or will you be able to look them in the eyes and to say, may the Lord bless you and keep you. He's kept me all these years. May he keep you. Maybe you don't even want to think about that because you don't want to think about death. If God is your father, if God is your shepherd, if God is the one who has walked you through life, you won't be afraid to meet Him. And if you're afraid to meet Him right now today, you need to seek the Lord. You need to seek His face and you need to come to a position of knowing that you have come to saving faith in Him, that He has adopted you as His child. If you can't say that with full assurance, I would plead with you in God's authority to talk with someone to search out the Word of God and to discover how you can know that you are rightly related to God. You won't be sorry in life that you did, and you certainly won't be sorry in death.
May he find us faithful as we live and as we die. Let's bow for prayer. Lord, our Father, we bow before you in thanks and praise for what you have accomplished for us in Christ. We thank you, dear God, our Lord, for the salvation that we have. God, I don't know about the experience of these who are before me today, but this old world has not been spending time with me this week counseling me how to die well. The only counsel we get from our world is how to live it up, how to enjoy the moment, how to enrich ourselves physically. But Lord, you have gotten a hold of our attention here for 45 minutes, 50 minutes, to stop and to think about what really matters and to consider the fact that we must number our days and apply our hearts to wisdom because we won't be here forever. There is a day when we will all meet you in some way. And I pray, God, that you would help us to consider these truths and to press on toward dying well by living well. Living in faith. Living through rejoicing in your presence in our life. May that be our legacy. And may we be making progress to that end. I plead for your people because there's one a number of huge hurdles. The first is anyone who does not know you as Savior. We pray for the salvation of that individual. Secondly, I pray for any believer who is struggling with sin and is not walking with you. I pray, God, that this would be a day of turning and repentance and change. And Lord, for those that are, I pray that we would continue to press forward and walk better, that we might die better. This is my prayer for each one and for myself, in the name of Jesus, we ask it. Amen. Let's stand together.